Amen. I sure am glad that y'all are here today. I just want to say welcome back. Um, even though maybe I was the one that was gone, but uh, welcome back. It's good to be back in the house of the Lord. I do want to thank uh, y'all church family for allowing us, uh, Tracy and myself, uh, the time off to go and visit with family uh, up in Oregon. And we, we spent eight or nine days up there uh, rekindling relationships and just enjoying family. And then uh, her and I were able to sneak off and go to the islands, St. Thomas, for uh, four nights. So what a blessing that was just to spend time with this sweet lady. And uh, so thank you all for giving me the time to do that and to go do that. What a blessing it is. I also want to thank uh, those who stepped up and filled in while we were out. Um, I know there was... Uh, uh, some that preached on Sunday morning, I know some taught on Wednesday night, and uh, other things that led worship, and just so thank you so much for stepping up and, and filling in the gap when uh, we were out, and so I just want to thank you all for that. Um, you know, we have a great, great church and a great staff, and, and we, we missed you. Uh, while it's nice to be away, it's nice to be back with you. Um, you know, life is, is full of questions. And I, I, when I think about that, you know, there's some of them are pretty funny, and some of them aren't, but um, I, some make us laugh. I, I come across these the other day, and I was thinking about this, you know, why do we press harder on the remote when we know the batteries are going dead? I think that somehow that's going to make it a little better, you know. Or why doesn't glue stick to the bottle, like on the inside? Um, is there ever a day when mattresses are not on sale? Seems like they're on sale all the time. And why do we constantly return to the refrigerator with hopes that something new to eat will have materialized? You know, that's a big one. We keep going back and open it thinking something different is going to be in there. But, um, you know, this morning, this message, I want it to be an encouragement uh, to each one of you because we go through a lot of things in life. We go through a lot of trials. We go through a lot of times where we, we are questioning things. We are questioning God and is he for us and, and that kind of thing. And sometimes we really struggle with believing that God is for us. I mean, you, you say you believe it. You say you believe it. And, and I don't doubt that you really do. But many folks have a hard time um, really taking it in that God is for us. And there's some reasons for that, that we, that we have a hard time with that. Um, sometimes it, it just doesn't feel like God is for us. I mean, you know, you, you, you're going through life, you, you feel like you have the, the bottom drop out, you, things are happening and, and they're out of your control and you're just wondering, God, why is this happening to me? And you feel like maybe God is not for you. It doesn't feel like it. And sometimes it's your circumstances that you're in, they make it hard for you to believe that God is for you. I mean, things are so bad, you can't even imagine uh, that this glorious truth that God, the almighty God of heaven and earth, is for you. Or maybe, it's, maybe it has to do with your background. I mean, there's, there may have been a relationship with a parent or a, a father or an authority figure that, that makes it difficult for you to really accept that you are loved completely and entirely by God, the one who spoke this world into being. Sometimes we don't feel it. Sometimes our circumstances make it hard and sometimes it's our background. But for whatever reason, 
It is important for you to understand in, in our Christian experience that we understand that God, almighty God, is for us. He loves us. See, as we near the end of Romans chapter 8, um, we've spent quite a bit of time in the, in the 8th chapter of Romans. If you have your scripture and want to open it up or, you know, scroll it up or whatever you need to do, but um, open it up to Romans 8. We're going to focus on a couple of verses there. But at the end of Romans 8, we see Paul writing, and, and we come to this, I want to call it a crescendo of questions. He's, he's been explaining a lot of things, and then all of a sudden you got question after question after question that he writes in, in this eighth chapter towards the end. And, and so let's hear from God's holy word this morning. Um, I want to, I want to uh, pray in just a moment. I want to read these two verses, and then we'll pray together. Um, I, would, I would say to you also that there are... Uh, People from our church, uh, Jim McDougal and, and uh, ha, uh, is out with TBM right now. They've on a, on a deployment to Kentucky. And so I, I hope that you would pray for the TBM team as they minister to people who have lost everything and, uh, you know, that they would minister hope and grace and God's love to them. But let's hear God's word. Uh, Romans 8, 31 and 32. God's word says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Loving Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, Father, for this morning, and I thank you that you inhabit the praises of your people. And as we sing praises to you, Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you have done for us. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would be with us this morning, that you would open our hearts and minds. Father, that we would see the truth that you are truly for us. And Father, that you love us so very much. Lord, I ask your grace. I ask your resources. I ask uh, just, Father, that you would be in and through the, the, the men and women of the, the Texas Baptist Men Organization as they work with disaster relief, as they work with the floods that happen in Kentucky, as they feed people, as they take care of them. I pray, Father, that you would just bless them. And, Father, that your grace would be ministered to them uh, through these volunteers that are going out and serving in times of crisis. Father, what a joy it is to be a part of your body. And I thank you, Father, for loving us so very much. Guide us as we seek you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Paul wrote these words uh, with a very practical purpose in mind. These Roman Christians, they were going through some stuff. They were, they were wrestling with big problems and they needed to be assured of God's love for them, of God's grace toward them, and that God was for them. Folks, we need to hear that message today. We need to, we need to take a break and say, you know what? God is for us. Can you say that? Say it with me. God is for us. He is for us. I, I, I love that. You know, Paul points them to this magnificent demonstration of love and grace of God. He's saying to them, here's the measure. Here's how you measure God's love for you. He said, this is how you can know that God is for you. 
And in these moments, when we question the love and the goodness of, of God, we might ask how, how we keep going. And Paul is waiting there in these scriptures to, to help encourage us along the way. And, and, you know, he offers us four uh, convincing proofs that God is for you. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and resting on him alone for salvation, then understand God is for you. You know, there over the years, down through the centuries, there have been monarchs, kings, there have been dictators, there have even been political parties um, that believed that God was on their side. Even Hitler believed, even though he was demonized, he believed that God was on the side of Germany while all of this was going on. But there's a big difference in God being for you and God being on your side. I would say to you this morning, make sure that you are on God's side. Okay, And I, I think this is important because the way we view, the way we look at and view our circumstances changes when we know that God is for us. Things can be all gone awry. Things can be all topsy-turvy. They can be turned upside down. And yet when we know that God is for us, it changes our view. It changes our circumstances and how we view them. I mean, could you look at opposition? Could you look at adversity? in the same way. I mean, can you cower and shrink and fret over the threats of others if you know that God is for you? <laughs> Here's the problem. We want to make God this vast, massive God who created the universe. We want to bring him down to our level. We want God that we can put in our front pocket and that we can call out whenever we want. And when things aren't going right, we want to say, well, he's not for us. Because we aren't for ourselves. That's how we are. We recognize God is for us. I mean, the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ, it assures believers of the constancy the consistency, the constancy of God's love and care that he is for us. And we know that he is with us when we look to the cross. We know that. All we have to do is look to the cross. Brothers and sisters, raise your eyes. If you're going through something, look to the cross. Because in that, you will see that God is for us. See, Paul is dealing with assurance here. I mean, can faith in Christ be overcome or conquered by anything? I mean, can something take that away or maybe in light of the trials and, and failures of our lives, how far does our assurance of our salvation go? Is there something that can take that away? Can a person or a power or a circumstance cut off a believer from God? See, I believe we find these answers in these questions in these two verses. Think about this. The first thing I want to in, in, in put out there, and, and if you're taking notes, write this down. Count on God's faithfulness. We sang songs this morning about God's faithfulness. He's been faithful then and he'll be faithful now. He will never not be faithful to us. We know that here. We need to understand it here. He is faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. You know, is our salvation ultimately due to our faithfulness or to his faithfulness? 
See, it's to his faithfulness. I mean, I don't want to diminish our perseverance or our endurance as Christians over and over. We're called upon to endure, to, to, stead, to be steadfast, to, uh, to bear up and to persevere. It takes a lot of perseverance to stay in the faith. But this kind of endurance is never the basis of our salvation. It's not about what I'm doing. It's about what he has already done. See, this perseverance that I'm talking about is evidence of a transformed life. We endure because we are transformed. The basis of our salvation rests in our faithful God, that he is faithful to do what he has said he would do. Look at how Paul develops his point here. He begins with a question that is intended to draw together what he's been explaining. And just just hang with me here for a little bit. There'll be a payoff here in a little while. But um, think about this. He says, what then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? What things is he talking about? What things is he talking about? Is he referring to the great chain of salvation that we discussed a couple of weeks ago, you know, in, in Romans uh, 8, 28 through 30, where he talks about, you know, he, he foreknew and then he predestined and then he called and then he justified and then he glorified this chain of salvation. Is he talking about that? Yeah. But he also includes that, but that's not all. He's also talking about how in Jesus Christ, we no longer have condemnation. We are no longer condemned. We are no longer under that condemnation. And we've been given the Holy Spirit who affirms our salvation in a variety of ways. He's talking about that too. No condemnation, the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the chain of salvation. As a matter of fact, Paul uses the question here to include and to explain the entire point that he's set forth so far in Romans. Think about this. I'm not going to re-preach Romans 1, chapter 1 through 8 right now, okay? But just think about this. This is what he is saying. What are all these things? That's the gospel that is God's power for salvation to all who believe. That's what it is. That the gospel is God's power for salvation to all that believe. That the gospel is the righteousness of God. That there is a need for the gospel due to... (laughs) Due to the universal depravity, the the, the corruptness, the immorality of the human being. Think about this. That the work of Jesus Christ is effective in making peace with God with regard to our sin. And he justifies it by the bloody death of his son. It was a horrible death. And he justifies us. And along with that, like Abraham, when we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, God counts that as righteousness. He sees that and he credits that to us as righteousness. And so then we are identified with Christ, not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. That's what Paul says when he says, what then shall we say to these things? He's talking about all of that. (laughs) Then he layers various aspects of assurance that belongs to every believer and the certainty that God causes all things to work together for good to those 
who love him and are called according to his purpose. Folks, what I'm trying to say is that our our assurance is on a rock solid foundation because we didn't initiate our salvation. It came from God. It belongs to God. It's his deal. He is the one who guarantees it, not Ridge Adams. It was he who brought it about by, by grace and, and, and through foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification. What then shall we say to these things? Listen, we have to apply these truths to our lives. We have to apply these truths. These truths are for life and truth that must be applied regularly in a Christian's life. I mean, how does he, Paul, summarize these truths that he gives us in in chapters one through eight? He does it with four simple words. The most basic way I can make it. Ten letters. God is for us. That's what he's saying. God is for us. You know, when you think about that, God being for us, what is the opposite of that statement? That God is against us. That God would be against us. You see, there's no middle ground with him. He's either for you or he's against you. Not that you would be lukewarm because then I would want to spit you out of my mouth. I would rather that you were hot or cold. You see, the most fearful words that anyone could ever hear is thus says the Lord, I am against you. You don't want the Lord to be against you. You don't want almighty God to be against you. You know, he declared... Thus says the Lord, I am against you to the Assyrians. This was a civilization that for over a century won every battle they fought. They were crushing the opposition. And at some point, God said, thus says the Lord, I am against you. And that civilization was ground into the dust and never heard from again. He also said that to the Babylonians. He said that to Tyre and Sidon, to Egypt when he delivered Israel from bondage and again later during Ezekiel's prophetic ministry. Thus says the Lord, I am against you. Those are the words that we never want to hear. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when God is for you, you can be assured that others will be against you because Jesus explained it this way. If you're going through some adversity, listen to Jesus's words. John 15 verse 18 and following says this, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. 
If he, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. They don't know God. They don't know the one who sent him. See, God is faithful. And when Paul writes this, if God is for us, who is against us? It doesn't mean you're not going to face any opposition. It doesn't mean that there's not going to have any persecution. But what it does mean is this, is that when opposition and persecution comes because of Jesus Christ, you can say, you know what? That's not a problem. Because the one who is for me is greater than anything that I face here. See, we need to claim that. Even in the face of the world's fiercest opposition, God is for you. And he works all things together for good for you. He is faithful. I can tell you that God is faithful to his promises, to his word. So moving on, we, you need more reinforcement. Think about, number two, think about God's sacrifice. Paul begins with, with looking not at the sacrifice of Christ, which is already done, but at God's part in the sacrifice. Look at verse 32. The emphasis on God the Father in orchestrating our salvation through Christ. He says this, He who did not spare his own son, now, unfortunately, neither the New American Standard Version or the English Standard Version um, brought out a, a Greek particle that is, intensifies that statement, but it can be translated as the word even, okay? And, and it's commonly used to magnify the action of the verb. And, and, and we might translate it like this, he who did not spare even his own son kind of intensifies the action of the verb. He who did not spare even his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? See, I think that Paul probably had in mind another situation where a father did not spare his own son. I mean, God told Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering. And they made the long journey up to the mountain of God. And Isaac carried the wood. And Abraham had the knife. And he had the fire. He went up and he bound him on the altar. And he put him up there. And he was ready to sacrifice him. And he, he raised the knife. To deal that fatal blow. When the angel of the Lord called to him. And told him to stop. Now to that point, these stories run parallel of what God did in Jesus Christ. Abraham did not spare his son, but God intervened so that Isaac could live. But like Abraham, God did not spare his own son. But this time he did not stop the fatal blow from falling on his only son. See, the language precisely points to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as God's only son. I mean, we are sons and daughters of God by adoption. But he alone is the eternal son of God who had never known anything but the infinite love of the father. 
I know it's difficult to, to get our minds around this level of sacrifice for little old me. But we have to think about God's sacrifice of his son for us. I mean, consider the context. Paul is dealing with the assurance of salvation. How can we know that we are saved? How can we rest in that? How can we have that assurance? And I just want to ask the question, why do we normally doubt our salvation? Why do we normally doubt our salvation? Typically, it has to do with one of two things. One is our poor performance in the Christian life. We doubt our salvation because of our own behavior, because of disobedience, because of bad habits, because of falling into sin, or maybe some of us jumping into sin. But it's because of our behavior that causes us to doubt our salvation. The second thing is our lack of understanding about how sufficient Christ's sacrifice truly is. That's our belief. Our behavior and our belief cause us to doubt our salvation. But you see, the gospel and our salvation means God is for us. God has accepted Christ's death in our place. (laughs) Hallelujah. I'm not going to get what I deserve. Because Jesus Christ took my punishment. See, God has accepted his death in my place and it satisfied eternal justice through him and and declared us righteous. And since that is the case, when we have doubts, we have to go back to the source. We have to go back to where we got it. So God did not spare even his own son. When you desperately needed someone to stand in for you to take the full wrath of God's punishment, he did not even spare his own son. This is God's sacrifice for us. So do you really believe that God is going to abandon you now? Midstream in life? Because of a relationship? Because of something that happened? Because of this or that? If the price of your salvation demanded that the only son of God could stand in your place before the wrath of the father, then can your poor performance, can your behavior demolish what Jesus Christ accomplished? I say, no way. He loved me even while I'm a sinner. He loved me. Are you going through a time of adversity right now that causes you to wonder if God's abandoned you? Then think about his sacrifice. Think about what God has done for you. And stop questioning his love and faithfulness. Thirdly, I would say this. Consider God's redemptive action. Not only did God spare his only, did not spare his own son, but he delivered him over for us all. So the verb there shows us that it's not an accident. He delivered him over. It's not plan B. It's part of all of what he had planned from the beginning. He intentionally delivered over his son for us. So what was Jesus delivered over to? 
I mean, we know he was delivered over to the Jews and they delivered him over to Pilate and Pilate to the, to the Roman executioners. But their part, horrible as it was in every way, was not ultimate. Because God delivered his son to God. Think about this. God delivered his son to God and not to the love of God, not to the mercy of God, but to God in all of his wrath and judgment. He delivered his son over to be the just penalty of his law so that he might bear the curse born by transgressors whom he would redeem. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Can we, can we doubt his love and faithfulness in light of delivering over his son? And see, in, in this passage, in, in all of Romans 8, when Paul says, us, we, our in the context, he's clearly speaking of fellow believers because he puts himself in with that. He includes himself and he's writing to the saints. He's writing to those who are called of Jesus, the beloved of God in Rome, <laughs> called as saints. And so when he says that, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. He's talking about us the adverb all expresses the particular way that each of us, regardless of our limitations, regardless of our failures, regardless of our sin, is equally redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You can never do anything that cannot be forgiven. The only thing that you can do that will not be forgiven is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, of, of rejecting the Holy Spirit, knocking on your heart's door, saying, you need Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If you reject Christ, there is no other option. Then you pay the penalty of your own sin. But praise God, he made a way. He delivered him up for us all. You know, and someone might say, well, <laughs> but Paul, you don't know how bad my sin is. Or you don't understand the pressures that I'm under. Or you don't know how often I fail. But this word of assurance intentionally covers all of those bases. For us all implies that no one is left out for whom God sent his son. And we can each one equally share in the assurance that belongs to those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Lastly, I would say this. I'm almost done. Thanks for hanging with me. Rely on God's provisions in Christ. You know, Paul makes his main point here. Remember that he's responding to the question, if God is for us, who is against us? 
The word if there can also be translated as the word since. Probably a better way of looking at it. Since God is for us, who is against us? See, Paul calls us to think about it and to reason through the magnificence of God sending his only son. And we know that God is for us when we see that he didn't spare his son, but delivered him over for us on our behalf. But the struggle that we have most of the time is whether or not God will come through in the particular circumstance that we are going through right now. We trust him for the big thing. But we don't trust him for the little things. And that's what Paul is making that point. He says, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? He's going from the greater to the lesser. He's saying, if he did this big thing for you, why wouldn't he take care of the smaller things? The lesser things. Moving from greater to lesser. I love that. We can be assured that he will supply the grace necessary in every circumstance and in every situation that we encounter. God is for us. So he keeps giving to us. (laughs) He doesn't cut us off. After a certain limit of grace, he doesn't say, well, oh, Ridge, you've used all your grace. You're going to have to wait till next year. He keeps giving us grace upon grace upon grace. Now, when he says all things there, will he not also freely give us all things? Does all things include cars and houses and toys and material things? See, Paul has in mind the the all things that are necessary for us to continue persevering as believers in Christ. Okay, this is not a, a, a health and wealth prosperity gospel blank check to claim, uh, but, but rather it is God's gracious provision for everything we need for living, for life, and for godliness, according to 2 Peter. Everything that we need... Don't confuse needs and wants. Everything that we need for life and godliness. So will you rely on God's gracious provisions for you? See, let, let me give you just a quick pitfall here, and, and I really am almost done. Ingratitude. Not being thankful. Complaining. Griping. And fear. Fear. All of those will worm their way into our lives when we forget or when we deny that God is for us. Look at the faithfulness of God in sacrificially sending his son to secure our redemption and know that his provisions for everything pertaining to life and godliness are amply met in Christ. Two final thoughts. I'm closing my Bible now. They come to mind in response to this question. What shall we say? And the first response to that is I would say is nothing. Have you ever totally 
received a, a totally undeserved gift and you couldn't find the words to express just how grateful you were for that gift. In light of all that God has done, what really can we say? My second response to that question, what shall we say, is the word everything. I should be filled with praise and should ever, never stop thanking God for everything that he has done for me. We should give him glory in everything and, and, and we should give him everything we have, including our very lives. You know, Dean Ritter put this way, and you might want to write this down. He said, worship is all that I have for all he is. Worship is all I have for all he is. That's truly worship. See, we each have been given a ministry. We're all ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so where is your ministry today? Have you encountered opposition? Have you encountered adversity? Because if you stand for the truth of the gospel, even if you do so with grace and love, you will encounter opposition and persecution. But you can joyfully endure that, knowing what God has done for you in his son, Jesus Christ. See, our response should be as Isaac Watts expressed it. In that hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. He said, love so amazing, so divine. It demands my life, my soul, my all. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, I thank you for this time. And Father, we know that your word is true. Father, we thank you for writing this love letter to us to know, so that we can get to know you better. But Father, I pray that the, the truth of the fact that you are for us would sink deeply into the core of our being. Father, that we would recognize that you love us so very much that, that you put it all out there for us so that we could be redeemed with you for all eternity. God, I pray for hearts of fire. Father, I pray for men and women who are willing to go all in with you. I pray, Father, that, that we would be done with our, our behavior and our, our lack of belief, our unbelief. But Father, that, that we would trust you more. Father, in each of the daily circumstances that we find ourselves in, Father, that you would be the first place we turn, not the last resort. Father, that we would honor you with all that we are. Father, with our, with our possessions, with our life, with our talents. Father, with everything, that we would bring glory and honor to you because of what you have done for us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would quicken our hearts. Father, that you would make our hearts sensitive to your word. Father, that we would be 
awake and alert, not lulled to sleep by the the one who is the, the prince of the power of the air, the liar, the enemy. But Father, that we would give all praise and glory and honor to you in everything we say, think, and do. Father, your faithfulness is what holds us. And so truly, Father, we are grateful. Father, I pray that you would move us from where we are to where you want us to be. Father, thank you for loving us first. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.